fatigue, sleep and caffeine. I'm Rob Lawrence and this is EMS One Stop. Welcome to One Stop Extra. On today's podcast, I will deliver a full narration of my article that originally appeared online at emsone.com or many other social media platforms. Additionally, I will welcome a special guest to have a quick chat on the subject and see if we can pull out a few takeaways. So before today's read, I would like to introduce and welcome uh, somebody from my uh, side of the pond, uh, almost. Uh, Professor Stephen James, PhD, is a core faculty member of sleep at the Sleep and Performance Research Centre. He's the co-director of the Counter-Bias Training Simulation uh, Centre at Washington State University. Dr. James earned his PhD in criminal justice in 2015, his dissertation, The Effects of Fatigue and Distraction on Simulated Driving Performance in Police Officers, his MA, also in criminal justice, uh, ha- sorry, he has an MA in criminal justice, and his thesis was the impact of policies of mobile digital computer use while driving in law enforcement vehicles. As I said, Dr. James Hales from the East Bank of the Pond is a native of Dublin, uh, and so we have an Englishman, an Irishman, we just need a Scotsman to complete that bad joke, but we'll carry on. Uh, like me, he's a fellow alum of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and we've actually served in the same operational theatres, including Cyprus, the former Yugoslavia. But Stephen also served in Afghanistan uh, before leaving the British military and heading over here to the US. Uh, welcome, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have the perfect set of credentials, uh, Stephen, to talk about fatigue. Uh, and I hope to have that discussion in a little while. But first, let's just uh, sit comfortably and take in this week's narration of my article. A recent headline in the New York Times read, The Army Rolls Out a New Weapon, Strategic Napping. The old British soldier in me immediately quipped on most of my social media channels that it appears that the US Army has finally caught on to the time-honoured British military convention of why stand when you can sit, why sit when you can lay down, and why lay down when you can sleep. Many of my veteran friends from both sides of the pond identify that their ability to catch the Zs or Zs, depending on where you're listening, any time, any place, anywhere, was a well-honed skill. Joviality aside, fatigue is an absolute killer, no matter what uniform one wears, and it's well worth looking at what the Army said, and what public safety can learn from it. The Army Field Manual, or AFM 7-22, Holistic Health and Fitness, establishes the Army's doctrine for the readiness training of soldiers, The 244-page tome lays out an entire ethos of how the soldier can be physically, mentally and spiritually ready to fight. Part and parcel of that preparation includes nutrition and sleep readiness. While we're not training to fight the enemy, we are training to be ready to serve our communities 24-7, 365. Fatigue is very real in any EMS or public safety system, and the way that we sleep, the quality of our sleep, and importantly, the length of our sleep can shape the effectiveness of our job performance. The Army Field Manual isn't telling us anything we don't already know, 
As an emergency service, we are on active duty every moment of the day, amassing more than 40 million national patient contacts a year. We don't stop. The current pressures of the pandemic and natural disaster, coupled with reduced staffing numbers, mean the pressure to fill the schedule is always constant. And sometimes we run the risk of letting staff back on the truck before they're rested and ready to go. A dangerous practice. EMS researchers have weighed in on this issue as well. In 2019, NHTSA's Office of EMS published its Fatigue in Emergency Medical Services Systems document, authored by Daniel Patterson, PhD, and Kathy Robinson, RN, EMTP. The paper identified five key recommendations. One, using reliable and or valid fatigue sleepiness surveys to measure and monitor fatigue in EMS personnel. Two, EMS personnel work shifts shorter than 24 hours long. 3. EMS personnel have access to caffeine as a fatigue countermeasure. 4. EMS personnel have the opportunity to nap while on duty to mitigate fatigue. And 5. EMS personnel receive education and training to mitigate fatigue and fatigue-related risks. Along with each recommendation, a set of performance measures identified goals to be achieved. This included showing the percentage of all shifts where personnel are provided with access to and permission to take a nap while on duty. Given the timing of the report and the spread of COVID-19, neither measures nor metrics have been established on a grand scale, nor the subject discussed in the national arena. The Army Field Manual also identifies the benefits of napping and caffeine. They note that when regular nighttime sleep is not possible due to mission requirements, soldiers can use short, infrequent naps to restore wakefulness and promote performance. When routinely available sleep time is difficult to predict, soldiers may take the longest nap possible as frequently as time is available. During periods of restricted sleep, which is six hours of sleep or less per night, napping combined with appropriate doses of caffeine, may help sustain cognitive performance and alertness. It's worth revising the benefits of rest using the key messages of the Army Field Manual. It reminds us that we are biologically designed to be awake during the day and sleep at night. Soldiers are reminded to achieve optimal readiness. They must have sleep, and the more sleep obtained, the better. Inadequate sleep weakens performance and jeopardises the mission. This is no different for any EMS or public safety function in this respect. Here are six takeaways from the Army Field Manual Doctrine on Readiness and Sleep. First up, the more sleep the better. Most soldiers, and EMTs for that matter, need seven to nine hours of sleep every 24 hours to maximise health and sustain performance. The brain requires sleep to maintain normal function. Sleep is necessary to sustain not only alertness, but also higher-order cognitive abilities such as judgment, decision-making and situational awareness. During sleep, the body releases hormones that help repair and rebuild muscles and replenish energy. During sleep, the body also clears toxins that have accumulated throughout the day from the brain and fixes and transforms new memories into usable knowledge. Second up, a good night's sleep. Sleep duration and continuity are optimised in environments that are quiet, dark and maintained at a comfortable ambient temperature. Some individuals believe they can sleep better with music or a television on, that they can sleep anywhere and the ambient noise does not bother them. Research shows this is not the case. 
Soldiers do not get a good night's sleep on a cot in the Tactical Operations Centre. Although sleepers are not aware of it, environmental sounds cause brief arousals, momentary speeding of the brain's electroencephalograph activity during sleep that effectively disrupts sleep continuity and reduces the restorative value of that sleep. Likewise, bright lights and excessively hot or cold environments can disrupt sleep continuity and reduce the restorative value of sleep. 3. Pre-sleep. Stress is incompatible with sleep. Pre-sleep routines that promote winding down, such as listening to soothing music, reading or taking a warm shower or bath about 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime tend to facilitate the transition to sleep. These routines will maximise sleep duration. Conversely, activities such as watching television, playing video games, chatting online or similar interesting or engaging activities tend to arouse the brain and delay sleep onset. These activities reduce the amount of sleep obtained and should be avoided during the pre-sleep wind-down period. Those experiencing significant stress often find relaxation techniques such as meditation and mindfulness exercises helpful. 4. Lay off the booze and cigarettes. Tobacco product use is also antithetical to sleep. People smoke before sleep to wind down. The stimulant in nicotine tells the body to get active while it increases heart rate and alertness. Although alcohol increases drowsiness and can facilitate sleep onset, it subsequently lightens and disrupts sleep as the body metabolises it during the night. It causes multiple arousals and awakenings, thus harming sleep more than it helps. Abstinence is the best strategy when a good night of sleep is especially important for next day activities or missions. 5. It's a hard day's night. People who work at night might be less productive and less well-rested since they work when their brains promote sleep. The brain's internal sleepiness-alertness cycle directly impacts performance. Because of this, work performed between 2300 hours and 0800 hours generally is less efficient, which is slower with a greater number of errors, than work performed during the daytime and early evening hours. Leaders should anticipate reduced performance. Sixth and finally, off-duty sleep. Maintaining a consistent sleep-wake schedule on both duty and non-duty days has the benefit of strengthening and reinforcing the internal wake and sleep-promoting process controlled by the brain's internal clock. These processes constitute the circadian rhythm of alertness. If individuals get less sleep, for example six hours per night during the duty week, then a sleep debt accrues. In such cases, it's better to sleep in on off-duty days and pay down the sleep debt rather than sacrificing sleep to try to maintain a consistent sleep-wake schedule and strengthen that circadian rhythm of alertness. My children and significant other will testify that I'm a professional, seasoned napper who conducted extensive research and method acting to construct this article. But seriously, I found nothing wrong with a power or combat nap as I was conditioned to it in my former military life. The notion of get your rest now because you don't know when your next sleep will arrive is as relevant to EMS as it is to the battle day. It's also a function of leadership and command. Each of my soldiers, back in the day, was issued what we called an eat sleep card which was completed and checked every day when in the field. Those who had been on prolonged tasks were assigned as priority sleepers their sleeping bags were marked with coloured tape and they were not disturbed for a pre-agreed amount of time. 
Perhaps the EMS version of this must be the allowance of a no return time between shifts. The real elephant in the fire and EMS bedroom that creates fatigue is unaddressed in this article, and that is shift length. Increasing demand on services means there is minimal rest to be had, and this compounds fatigue into a time bomb. While we can't all tuck our staff in at night or day, at least we can allow them to rest and nap during downtime and extol the virtues of good restorative sleep in their off-duty periods. Adherence to the Army Field Manual and the work of NHTSA may just save a vehicle accident, a medication error and lives. And I will snooze to that. So that was my view. And of course, I'd love to hear your comments in the commentary section of any of the social media platforms you read my article on. So going back to my guest, and uh, your name isn't so well known, Stephen, in EMS circles. Obviously, you are doing a lot with our police colleagues, but the subject, I think, is absolutely germane to whether you're fire, whether you're police, whether you're EMS, as we heard, whether you're military. Uh, so fatigue, it's something we ignore at our peril, right? Absolutely. Um, and we do ignore it, unfortunately, you know, and, and, and you and I have spoken sort of offline about yeah. what a good job the British military has done uh, in the last couple of decades. But there have been times where operational need um, supersedes it. I remember when I first got to Yugoslavia, we were working 36 on 12 off. So although we have a good history of, of putting the soldiers' uh, operational readiness first, um, we, we haven't always been there, and, and, it, and unfortunately, it was often down to the commander on the ground and how they felt about it. There was no uh, official training. There was no military pamphlet. There was no um, doctrine on, on fatigue at that time. Uh, but most of my uh, colleagues and most, a lot of, about 50% of my funding uh, comes from the Department of Defense because we recognize how important it is to support the warfighter. Um, myself and some colleagues from uh, Air Force Research Labs and Navy uh, a year ago, though, uh, penned an article on how difficult it is for commanders in the ground. And, and this is the same for DOD space, uh, EMS, fire, uh, and, and policing to translate the research into meaningful operational uh, guidelines. It's very, very difficult for, for, to do that translational work. Indeed. And so we're all in the same boat, or dare I say the same bed in this case, for for this discussion. <laughs> but fatigue is something that we have to deal with. You mentioned that kind of military example. And uh, I've worked out that I'm probably senior to you by a few years. And uh, my, my sleep deprivation started in the South Atlantic, uh, mm -hmm. where everybody was given actually priority sleep by putting a piece of wine, white, what we would call mine tape, I guess you'd call it police tape here on the bottom of your sleeping bag and it means leave him alone uh for a little while because and 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 the, and the quartermaster would come around and sort of you know put it on take it off etc and that was kind of the way that we we get we we created sleep for people that absolutely need it in the same way though let's fast forward to the united states in the modern day it's a function of command to make sure our people are arrested but it's also a challenge for commanders and leaders and chiefs and whatever you want to call them to actually have the right amount of backsides on seats, whether it's patrol cars or ambulances, how can they balance that challenge? So my mentor in this field is a, is a man called Brian Vila, and, and he uh, arguably started the discipline of police fatigue research. He was a, a former Marine, won a Purple Heart in Vietnam, 
became a police officer after that. And when he was a, a deputy sheriff um, working in LA, he, uh, he realized after uh, extended shifts, uh, night shift after night shift, he wasn't the sort of cop that he wanted to be. Um, and it, he, he moved into academia, um, became the director of crime control at, at NIJ in, in, in Maine Justice, uh, and started this discipline because what leaders need to really focus on isn't just bums on seats, right? It's not just boots on the ground. It's the work capacity of their operators in the field. And we, we kind of forget that, that the more fatigued an operator is, the more prone they are to accident, illness, um, litigation, uh, collisions, uh, and just lower work uh, performance, lower output. So we really need to consider the capacity of our operators and, and, and how well they're performing, how efficiently they're performing, um, and not just look at um, filling those gaps with more and more fatigued operators through overtime and, and other policies. So one of the you know one of the, the issues of being fatigued, of course, is we wouldn't send someone to work drunk. Although mm -hmm. there are, of course, cases where people have gone to work drunk, pilots have flown aircraft drunk. But fatigue is as bad as blowing a failing uh, blood alcohol test. It is, it is. And, you know, there's been numerous studies that have equated uh, sleep restriction uh, and long wake hours, uh, 17 to, to 19 or 24 hours awake, for example, being roughly equivalent to blowing a 0 0.10. And they affect a whole range of, of uh, cognitive and, and, and psychomotor vigilance tasks. So reaction time, speed, accuracy, working memory. Um, there's a big caveat, though, in, in the fact that it doesn't work the same way. It has the same overall impact. You know, performance is degraded, safety is degraded, um, and for the EMS community, both the operator and the patient's safety uh, can potentially be uh, at risk. But with alcohol, every drink we take, we get steadily drunker. And it's, you know, and, and depending on the individual's tolerance and, and uh, metabolism and so on, it's predictable. With fatigue, what happens is the, the, the longer we're awake and the more fatigued we are, the more instability gets entered into the system. And we talk about a model called the Swiss cheese model. And typically there are no bad outcomes if all the holes in the, in the Swiss cheese don't line up. Um, but as you get more and more fatigued, you get more holes in your layers of Swiss cheese and they get bigger. So the likelihood uh, of an accident or uh, a bad outcome increases. And that's a problem because quite often those holes don't line up. So we get away with it, right? We're super fatigued, we're, we're beyond safe, but we make it home at the end of shift. And because we've done it once and we've done it time and time again, um, we, we, we um, discount that risk and it becomes self-reinforcing until the tragedy happens. And that's unfortunately when headlines get made and, and when people like me kind of have to come and give talks to organizations about, uh, I had the horrible honor of going to a sheriff's department in uh, the Northeast uh, two years ago now to talk to an agency because one of their deputies fell asleep at the wheel of his car um, after giving more than 30 years to his community, uh, fell asleep at the wheel of his personal vehicle driving home after an extended shift hit another car, which then hit a, another car and killed a 10 year old girl and put nine other people in the ICU. And that's 30 years of service to his community wiped out. It's, you know, it, it's a tragedy 
for the families involved. Um, and it doesn't need to happen. You know, we, we need to be able to be smarter about protecting both our employees, our public safety uh, and um, uh, medical emergency safety operators and our communities. And I've actually seen that point, Stephen, in, in various recommendations from various studies that says if you've at the end of a long shift or the end of a particularly taxing and difficult shift, perhaps there is an opportunity or should be uh, an opportunity to nap or have a quick half hour before you hit the road uh, to go home. Because it sometimes, as, we, as you've just illustrated, is the difference between life and death. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, and, and, and this is kind of where it gets complicated. And, and when you talk to a, a fatigue or shift work researcher or a sleep researcher, the answer is never satisfying because all of our answers are, well, it depends. Uh, and it's difficult because, yes, absolutely, if you're unsafe to drive, you should sleep and rest and recuperate. But on the flip side, the later that you get home after shift to have your bout of consolidated shift uh, sleep for recovery for your next shift, the harder it is to get a good quantity of sleep because your circadian pressure to wake builds and builds in the morning. So we know the earlier you can get to bed in the morning, the more sleep you can get because you're not fighting your own circadian uh, pressure to wake. Um, so, so that's why uh, at the beginning I, I said it's, it's a holistic issue because yes, napping policies, I'm 100% behind both, not just at the end of shift, but during shift when, when appropriate. Um, but at the same time, we need to look at things like shift length and shift start and end times. Uh, that's important right. too. And, and in my article, I, I make a, a little bit of a gentle but well-meaning and serious prod about you know the shift length, mm -hmm. because and also the fact you know whilst we can't have what I described in the article as a good old-fashioned eat sleep card that you presented at every meal to show with you if you've had a nap or if you've been sleeping or if you've been eating etc. Mm -hmm. But that kind of, you know, minimum return time between shifts, because, of course, we're short tomorrow, there's some overtime, can you come back in six hours? Yeah, of course I can, because I want the extra money, but that puts a hell of a risk on everybody involved. And so that's kind of, you know, one of the things we need to really, it's an elephant in the bedroom almost. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a group uh, put together a few years ago, they published uh, a series of articles in 2018 around uh, evidence-based guidelines for fatigue risk management in EMS. Um, it was headed by uh, Daniel Patterson, um, but it had some great uh, colleagues. Uh, Hans van Dongen works with me. Uh, he's my director. Um, John Violanti works um, from SUNY Buffalo and, and, a, and a bunch of not just sleep experts, but also emergency medical experts too. Looking at where the evidence is with regards to fatigue mitigation in EMS. Um, and especially if you are at the executive level um, or uh, in, in charge of operations of an EMS unit, I highly recommend you, you uh, Google Daniel Patterson and, and, and his guidelines. Um, now, it's the, they, they kind of give five strong recommendations, um, or, or sorry, not strong, they give five recommendations. And, and the language in the article seems to say, well, there's weak support or there's weak evidence. Right. That is... in, in the article, of course, I referenced those uh, those five points. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we, there is actually a link to, to Dan Patterson. Oh, that's great. Work. Yes. Um, that's great. The, 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 the problem, not the problem, but of course, that was actually finally published in August of 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the time you have a chance to you know read it, digest it, take it in, come up with a plan, mm -hmm. we're then into COVID. And so, uh, again, you know, my note there is that 
perhaps we didn't have a chance because there were performance measures. There was some indication of, you know, what we should be doing and how we should measure it as, 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 as is appropriate. Mm -hmm. I don't believe, though, we actually got there because COVID got in the way. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the AFM coming out just kind of gives us a chance to come back to Patterson's work, to come back to talking to you, to come back to the recommendations mm -hmm. and hopefully, you know, remind ourselves. And it's a shame, really, we need reminding that public safety folk need to be rested before they literally go out on shift, on duty, on call to serve. Absolutely. But one of the take homes for me, because where I see myself fitting in with the whole spectrum of sleep and fatigue researchers, you know, we it, it, as, even in our group, we have um, researchers that look at sleep from mathematical modeling, through cell biology, through fly models, mice, humans in the lab and humans in the field. Um, my team specializes in sort of translating uh, fatigue risk in high consequence occupations, military law enforcement, nurses, uh, and athletes, right? And, and, and all the consequences for athletes are different. But the work we've done with athletes is, is on, the, on the, the lesser side, but, but is very impactful for our other work because it's all about maximizing performance. And one of the things that uh, I kind of was disappointed with, and it's, it's no fault of, of Daniel and his colleagues because the articles and the research just hasn't been done, is there's not an awful lot of evidence on how it impacts patient safety or how it impacts some of the more um, meaningful operational outcomes. And that's what I'd really like to see. And, and I'd really sort of put a call out there for both researchers in this, in this area, but also uh, organizations and agencies that yes, we have evidence on whether or not fatigue measurements work and napping works and shift times and shift lengths. But the space that I like to work in is, does it actually affect operational performance? And for the EMS community, that's patient safety, patient yeah. outcomes, you know, um, and so on. And I'd really call, uh, and what part of the problem is once we ask those questions and find those answers, we're then duty bound to do something about it. Uh, and that's sometimes why it's very difficult to, because we're opening ourselves up to potential liabilities. But indeed, but, the question of who 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 knew is always uh, always right. out there, and that's a great shout out to our colleagues uh, who listen from the pre-hospital care research forum. That uh, if we need mm -hmm. a something to research, this is definitely something to research. Mm -hmm. You are a subject matter expert. You mentioned Dan Patterson, of course, he's out there as well. Um, Patterson's work and the military's work talk about, and let's kind of conclude on the things that they mentioned, which was both napping and caffeine. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what are your views on napping, napping and caffeine? Uh, napping, I'm a big fan of napping um, in any operational community. And, and like we sort of started this, this talk with in the British Army, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded of what my, um, my old platoon sergeant used to say, uh, and he said, like, boss, I'd rather be looking at them than looking for them. And, and controlled napping in a safe environment, whether or not it's in, in the rig or in the station house. Um, you know, there's this kind of pushback. Well, we can't have people sleeping on taxpayers' time or on company time or whatever. But it's all about maximizing performance and safety. And it's all, it should be all about the patient care and the patient experience. And if that's what you're focused on, then napping shouldn't be a political, uh, you know, football. Um, now, there are some people that say, well, if you implement a napping policy, some people are going to take advantage of it. 
That may be true, but every uh, first responder I've ever worked with has been a professional. And uh, I, I absolutely believe that the overall good will outweigh any uh, minor people taking, you know, um, taking advantage of any fatigue mitigation policies. Now, uh, there is concern about sleep inertia, you know, that kind of groggy feeling yeah. when you immediately wake. And that typically happens when you come out of delta sleep, that deep sleep. So um, in someone who's not chronically sleep deprived, uh, you typically won't go into delta sleep uh, that quickly. So short napping, uh, 20, 25 minute naps uh, are usually perfectly acceptable. But within your own organization, uh, you can think of other policies, you know, like if you have a, a two person rig, maybe the person allocated to driving doesn't nap in case you have that one minute turnaround and you don't want someone operating a motor vehicle immediately yeah. upon waking from Delta. If you have, uh, you know, two crews available, maybe one is stood up and, and awake and the other one can nap and then they rotate and those types of things. So there are relatively straightforward ways to mitigate the risk of sleep inertia. And the other big caveat there is that there's never been any research to understand the impact of um, adrenaline or the sympathetic response on sleep inertia. So when those bells go off, or when you jump into the rig, when you slide down the pole, if that's still a thing, um, we don't know that, that what that shot of uh, adrenaline or norepinephrine or whatever hitting your system, we don't know how that affects sleep inertia, if it wipes out. Because a lot of the studies done around sleep inertia, the subject in the sleep, in the sleep lab is lying in a bed and they don't even let them sit up straight. Uh, they, they kind of give them the task right. while they're still in a recumbent position because it, even the simple act of sitting up starts to mitigate uh, sleep inertia. So uh, again, we, we just need more research. We need, we need more uh, occupationally relevant and, and, and task relevant research to understand how that works. Now with caffeine management, again, caffeine is still the best um, intervention um, pharmaceutical intervention that we have when we balance um, safety and uh, how it increases performance. But the, the bang for buck, the return on investment is pretty low. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues here in Washington State uh, did a study looking at caffeine dosage and kind of the return on performance. And after a pretty um, low dose, around uh, 200 milligrams of, of caffeine, um, when you when you step up from that, you really don't see much of, a, of an improvement in performance. So one of the key take homes is yeah, caffeine is good, but use it in moderation, but and also use it strategically. Uh, understand if you're ingesting your caffeine through, for example, coffee, it takes time to metabolize. So take it before you need it. If you know, uh, you know, you you work the shift enough that you know, well, it's that 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. slump, yeah. or even a 3 p.m. slump. Start taking it at two. So it has time to metabolize and hit your system and push you through that circadian low um, before you need it. By the time you need it, it's, it's kind of almost too late. On the flip side, you know, once you come into those morning hours of, of 6, 7 a.m., um, if you do have a short commute and it's safe to do so, uh, maybe stop drinking caffeine before your shift ends so it has time to dissipate from your system and doesn't interfere with your recovery sleep. Excellent. Um, we will finish there, Stephen, as we're, we're just about on time. Clearly, this is a command function. It's also mm -hmm. an individual responsibility. 
because clearly when you go home, you know, you, you should be resting and mm -hmm. people that come to the end of their, you know, their run of four shifts want to get up and carry on with their normal day. Well, that's not putting sleep in the bank. So mm -hmm. lots to think about. Um, so how can we get in touch with you or how can we follow you uh, in the future? Because uh, hopefully you'll become a expert in the EMS world and known too because of the great work that you're doing. Um, well, in, in fact, this may be one of my first toes I'm dipping into the EMS world. I've, I've kind of had some dalliances with fire, um, but, but I am best known uh, in the policing and, and DOD world. So my email address, uh, I will put it out there. I'm, I'm happy to engage anyone in a conversation. And if I don't have the answer, I'll, I'll either find it for them or I will direct them to someone more suitable. Uh, is stevejames at wsu.edu. Uh, my lab's website, um, which kind of gives an overview of what we do and also has more contact options uh, for us, is labs, L-A-B-S dot W-S-U dot E-D-U forward slash S-H-O-T, uh, which stands for Simulated Hazardous Operational Tasks. Great. Thank you. And... Uh... That's about all for now. Uh, if I can be followed on Twitter at UKRobL or on LinkedIn, that's it. I've been Rob Lawrence and my guest has been Dr. Stephen James. Until next time, bye for now. That is all for now, but if you're listening on the SoundCloud, just hang on for one second because Chris and Kelly will be responding for Inside EMS in just a second. Bye for now.